So when you have very high lactate levels for a while, you're not going to burn fat. Uh, then um, also we have, we published last year with that lactate also inhibits uh, a transporter in mitochondria, which is CPT1 and CPT2, which is the, the door by, through which fatty acids enter mitochondria. So when you're messing up with those energy systems constantly and having very high lactate levels, even when heart rate goes down, that's the thing of, of why to your question earlier about using lactate or heart rate, you can you, you can be in the in, in the cardiovascular phase of being recovered completely, but metabolically you're still unstable. Welcome to the Training Peaks Coachcast. I'm your host Dirk Friel. In each episode, we'll sit down with industry experts to discuss coaching methodologies, the latest research, and leading tools for endurance training. My guest today is Dr. Inigo Samion, who is a professor at the University of Colorado School of Medicine, where he also performs cancer and diabetes research. He has been testing and coaching world-class endurance athletes for 25 years. He is also the director of high performance for the professional cycling team UAE, where he is the personal coach of two-time Tour de France champion, Tade Pogachar. I hope you enjoy today's episode and can apply some of the same concepts to your own training. Uh, Inigo, thank you so much for joining me today. I, this is pretty a huge honor. You're the first guest of 2023 for me on the CoachCast, and you're also a longtime friend. We've known each other about 27 years now, coming up on 30 years. So uh, yeah, it's, it's really a pleasure, a great honor to have a good friend of mine on today. Thank you so much, Dirk. And likewise, it's a great honor to be here. And yeah, it's amazing how time flies by. I still remember we were racing together, training together almost every day, fucking have, uh, in school in Fort Collins. And I have I, uh, great memories of not only racing, but we drove to Redlands, California once for a stage race. Oh, yeah. yeah. And we were in my mom's <laughs> minivan, and it was your time to drive, and you had never driven an automatic <laughs> car before. So I think we let you drive for like five minutes and then you were using both feet. And we're like, no, 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 stop. No. And you go, you're no longer a driver. Yeah, that's funny. And I brag about, you know, like our long-term uh, uh, friendship because, uh, you know, your name comes up all the time, right? Uh, training Peaks is a very important uh, uh, weapon for us, right? We, 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 it's our Bible, right? We, we train with it. We live with it. And uh, so you, your name comes up a lot, right? And I say, yeah, I, I know Dirk. I've been knowing Dirk for almost three years. <laughs> well, I know. Really? I, yeah. I knew Inigo. I, same, same here. So uh, how does a kid, a teenager from the Basque country, make it to Fort Collins, Colorado to go to CSU? Yeah. So as, uh, well, you know, like I, I, I started law school and I hated it. I didn't like it. Uh, I didn't know that. I was in, in Madrid. And then, uh, uh, yeah, I liked everything related to sports medicine, performance, and uh, CSU had a very good program in Colorado. And I wanted to continue uh, being uh, linked to cycling and, and, and racing. Because uh, back in the days, I was, uh, I was uh, a top amateur uh, uh, um, rider in the Basque country. And then, uh, yeah, so I decided to, you know, cross over the pond and go to CSU and continue with cycling. And uh, yeah, so uh, it, it was a great experience. I learned a lot. I had great professors, and especially they opened my eyes a lot. And then from there, I was I was uh, continuing my my development. Well, I remember you being a great climber, and we did one collegiate race together. We represented CSU, yeah. and uh, <laughs> we got first and second, and we beat CU. So that's one of the highlights of our collegiate careers. <laughs> yeah, it was it was in Colorado Springs. 
Yeah. And it was uh, uh, the color state championships. Yeah. Yeah. It was a very cold day. I remember <laughs> and we, 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 we took off, right? That's yeah, awesome. So it was really cool. <laughs> so uh, fast forward 25 years now or so. Um, Tell us everything you're doing. You are doing, you wear a lot of hats. You are not only the coach of, of a Tour de France champion, but uh, you do a lot of other things with the school of medicine. Uh, tell us everything that you're doing now. Yeah, so it's, uh, I'm, I'm a professor at the School of Medicine at the University of Colorado. Um, I'm also, uh, have another appointment at the University of Colorado in Colorado Springs because we have different campuses. And uh, um, so I do uh, their uh, research. Uh, trying to do research because it's not easy with the funds nowadays. Uh, it's very expensive and it's not easy and, 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 and it takes a long time to, to do research also. But yeah, researching in the areas of uh, metabolism uh, focused on cancer as well as also uh, metabolic uh, uh, disease like type 2 diabetes and mitochondrial function. And, and some, some also related to exercise and performance. And, uh, um, and then, yeah, I also uh, um, have uh, trying to have like um, some few startups, right, with that, some uh, uh, biomarkers that we're trying to come up with. Um, and, and also, yeah, definitely yeah, just collaborating with uh, working, collaborating, working with Team UAE um, as a director of performance and uh, yeah, personally coaching uh, Tadej Pogacar and, and other uh, great writers. And I'm very excited about it and very, very happy. So yeah, it's a lot of hats and Absolutely. a lot of things going on, but uh, happy with that so far uh, and still have our batteries. <laughs> <laughs> Energy left over. Yeah. So how, how do they relate to each other? You know, when you think about diabetes, cancer research, Tour de France training, like training endurance athletes, you know, there's you know, you're finding commonalities between all of these. Maybe what what's kind of at the root of that? Um, in terms of like, how do they actually relate to each other? And you can kind of like draw from one research project and almost bring it into the Tour de France setting. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. And, and uh, uh, to me, it's been like a blessing and, or, or a coincidence or destiny or whatever you want to think of it. But uh, it's been that, um, yeah, they're very related. Uh, I always say that you cannot understand imperfection if you don't know perfection in the first place. So Perfection are the elite athletes. They have the perfect metabolism, the perfect mitochondria, right? Um, and yet um, uh, the nutrition is really high in carbohydrates. For example, they're the only population that, that does not have, uh, uh, they don't develop type 2 diabetes or obesity, overweight, um, and uh, yet they have the highest carbohydrate. But it's a different story, right? But, but you can, they're very efficient metabolically speaking, and everything happens in mitochondria. Then when I arrived at the School of Medicine, I was already thinking about how we can translate these concepts to, to uh, people with chronic diseases, like type 2 diabetes, like um, um, uh, metabolic health, metabolic syndrome, cancer, metabolism. And that, that's when I was ex exposed uh, at the School of Medicine. They're brilliant uh, uh, researchers, clinicians. And um, I saw right away, I, I started to look at, um, uh, understand the metabolism of these uh, patients. And they saw, I saw right away that they were on the opposite metabolic pole as an athlete. So we could definitely learn. We have learned a lot of lessons from uh, uh, working with elite athletes that we can apply to populations with chronic diseases, not only to understand more the root of the pathogenesis of some of these diseases at the cellular level, 
but also to come up with clinical programs where exercise is a big part of it. And likewise, going back to cycling, for example, or other sports, doing muscle biopsies on patients and understanding, uh, or even in, in, in uh, animals and seeing um, how cells work uh, under the microscope. We're looking at mitochondrial respiration with specific machines where we inject uh, different substrates like fatty acids, like uh, carbohydrates, like proteins. It allows me to understand much better, uh, you know, to, to be deeper into the granular level, the molecular level of how cells work during exercise. So um, it's, a, it's a symbiotic relationship. And uh, it's been, uh, for me, it's been very in, 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 uh, enrichment process um to be able to to connect the dots and uh and and yeah now i'm I, i'm very excited about it because it, it seems that it was a difficult concept to sell even at the university uh it was like whoa what are you talking about uh coming from athletes and you're going to try to understand diseases right uh, very difficult to sell but now it's it's more and more accepted hmm. i mean you're one of the very few coaches that are actually seeing what's happening within a microscope you know looking at the actual processes in play that we as coaches are trying to train. So I, I think what's, what's really fascinating to me is you think internal first, you know, you think bio, biochemical and what energy systems are we trying to train, which then will lead to a better biomechanical output, right? But the athlete thinks biomechanical first. They're not thinking internal energy systems. So is that how you kind of go about when you think about training and setting out a training program for somebody? You're thinking the training systems or the energy systems? Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great, great question. And I, I, think, I think that because of my background, right? I, the ability of uh, athletes to exercise depends on the ability to convert uh, biochemical energy right, uh, or chemical energy into mechanical energy, right, uh, as you said, right, not, not the other way around, right, um, um, to, to, to move those pedals, you need right. to produce ATP, and to produce ATP to make those muscles move, you need to rely on different bioenergetics, so this is what, uh, from you know, 27 years working uh, and learning, because I keep learning every day in this field, and, and, and then the research that I've been doing at the cellular molecular level, um, that, that's been helping me a lot to, to really understand this and see things maybe in a different angle. But I, I always, when I plan a training program, I, I always tell, you know, think, okay, what, what, what energy system we want to train today, right? We want to train um, a lipolytic system or oxidative phosphorylation, which is kind of the same almost. Or do we want to train the glycolytic pathways or we want to train anaerobic uh, uh, pathways or we want to train sprinting? Right, uh, or maybe we want to uh, um, um, build a program that has a little bit of a few or a little bit of everything, right? right. So, but to me, uh, that that's how I I focus and I translate that into training zones. Uh, so, for example, training zone two, which is now I don't know, but it's going like crazy. It's something yeah. that I mean, probably probably heard heard me about it back in the day when we were training together because I started working with those concepts. But it's 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 it's, it's a, uh, zone two. Z2, but uh, there's a lot of biochemistry uh, behind it. So yeah, that's what I'm trying yeah. to do. And we'll, we're going to get into that. Um, I want to step back first though. When, when we think from the athlete point of view, what tools do they have to 
actually measure their training intensity when they're out training. And let's just focus on the bike. They have rate of perceived exertion. They have uh, heart rate. They have power. <laughs> do you prescribe, how do you prescribe training sessions? So that's a good question also. So I, I, I use both uh, uh, power output and, and heart rate. Okay. And uh, the famous uh, coupling that your dad, Joe, came oh, up de with. Decoupling? Uh, I mean, decoupling, sorry, that your dad came up with. To me, that's something that is very important also. And uh, so I mainly prescribe that in, in power output and, um, and, and heart rate. And uh, obviously, uh, I get their rate of perceived exertion and uh, their feedback afterwards. I give always half tips about listen to your heart. Uh, and um, as, as we've been talking about this over the years, right? When, when power meters came up, uh, all the power meters are from the uh, late nine, no, 80s. Early, yeah, exactly. Early 90s when Craig Lemon had the first big uh, yeah. one, remember? Uh, but uh, it, they became popular more in the late 90s, right, at the turn of the century. And that's where, like, people started to to ditch the whole heart rate concept, right? Um, and, uh, uh, you know, we were talking a lot about that, and I was uh, uh, a big defender of using heart rate. Uh, people would call me old school for using heart rate, uh, but then, uh, but yeah, but it's very important. And in fact, now, now we have all these concepts about heart rate variability uh, that are very trendy now. Uh, but listen to your heart is very important. You know, when the heart doesn't get up and you're doing a session, whether it's a lower intensity or a higher intensity, you should know yourself like, wow, this power output doesn't correspond to my heart rate. There's something wrong that day, right? So it's normally uh, lack of glycogen in the muscles or fatigue. So uh, it's important to also tell the athlete uh, that, that, that uh, pay attention, listen to your heart uh, because it might not correspond to your power output. Whereas before, uh, back in the days when people did, and a lot of people did heart rate all along 20 years ago, remember, people just, would just go by a power output, right? They would not see the, the, the heart rate and uh, they would just uh, get overtrained and fatigue all the time. And this is why, uh, yeah, it's just uh, continuing using the heart is good. But yeah, power output and heart rate, both are great parameters. And then we do a lot of, um, I do a lot of, uh, um, uh, um, uh, um, biomarkers uh, to see how an athlete is uh, assimilating training. Uh, so uh, starting by, fir first of all, sorry, I, I rewind a little bit. I, I do a lot of lactate testing, both in the laboratory as well in the field, uh, where I use lactate. And we published a paper with my colleague, George Brooks, from the University of California, Berkeley, where we show that it's a very good surrogate for mitochondrial function, metabolic flexibility, and uh, so, uh, therefore, I, I've been using this for actually for 20 something years, you know, using lactate as a surrogate. Um, <clears throat> but uh, yeah, we do lactate to, to look at training zones and then we confirm that throughout, throughout training. And then uh, I do blood analysis uh, where can, I can see a bunch of different biomarkers uh, of recovery, uh, biomarkers of being more catabolic or being more anabolic and recovered, or uh, biomarkers of oxygen. Um, uh, carrying capacity or muscle damage. Uh, and this way I can assess quite accurately um, the way an athlete is assimilating training and competition. So we can move on to the next block of whether it's competition or racing, or we have to take a time off. Got it. Okay. I want to go back. You mentioned decoupling and decoupling really 
is taken into account after the workout. I assume you're looking at training peaks. You might be looking at decoupling. Explain the concept of decoupling within a workout that you might review, but then what did you prescribe to the athlete in the first place? Did you give them a target heart rate or a target power or both? And then what would you specifically look at afterwards in terms of decoupling? Yeah, it's, it, it depends on the kinds of energy system that we want to target, right? Uh, so in, in, in the 2007 or something like, or no, 2001, uh, that's when, when people were uh, looking into power output and, and heart rate, right? I, I wanted, they wanted to date. So I, I presented at a conference at the American College of Sports Medicine, but I never got to publish it, where I could look at that uh, uh, power output uh, uh, doesn't really necessarily correspond to heart rate always. Depends mm-hmm. on the intensities, right? Uh, and likewise, I threw their VO2 as well as lactate, right? So you could see that, I mean, heart rate is a physiological parameter, right? It responds to what's going on inside your body, right? Where there's power output, power output is a mechanical parameter, right? It's the consequence of, as I said earlier, how you convert biochemical energy into mechanical energy, right? So one of the things is that um, um, I, I showed that, yeah, power output and heart rate that it might change. So this is why, for example, you might start up a workout at, let's say, you prescribe someone 250 watts to say something at zone two, for example, right? Uh, and the heart rate might be 140, right? Maybe an hour later, the heart rate is still 140. Two hours later, it still is 140. And, and, and there's no dehydration in that athlete or there's, there's no, you know, it's not hot weather and that athlete is drinking normally. But then maybe in the third hour, that athlete is 150, and then the last hour is, well, 155. So it's 15 bits per minute higher at the same power output. So that means that uh, that uh, the, the metabolic stress of that training for that athlete uh, is different. That athlete maybe started at zone two and is finishing in zone three and might lead to overtraining. So there's like a decoupling there, right? Whereas an athlete that is well-trained uh, and which I'm fortunate to see that the majority of my athletes are world-class, right? Um, uh, so they, well, all of them I'm training now, actually, because I don't, I don't train outside, um, <laughs> coach outside the team at this point, I'm quite busy. But yeah, so that we can see that in, in this case, you know, they're, they're perfectly maintaining heart rate and uh, power output uh, intensities. In this case, for example, is zone two. When it goes up, might be a sign of maybe uh, dehydration or maybe it's a sign of uh, that, yeah, it was not sustainable. So that's when after the training, I check with the cyclist and I, um, I asked him, hey, how was training? And I said like, yeah, I feel a little bit like heavy lysterazine. Okay, yeah, it's just you went outside your range zone. So next next training, listen to your heart better, right? And that, that's where we can see that there's like, a, yeah, there's a decreasing power output towards the end, but heart rate is maintained. Uh, it's, it's, it's a fine tuning uh, until... They, they get used to that intensity and then that's, they, they're perfectly coupled both. Um, then you, you have higher intensities like zone four, which would be kind of equivalent to a lactate threshold, if, um, um, if you will. And, and, and that's where like, uh, yeah, we can go uh, by uh, power output or heart rate. I, I like uh, at the beginning of the season going more, more by, by heart rate. Um, and then in the middle towards the last part of the season, or middle this is like like go to um, power output because those are benchmarks that we need to hit. For example, right. to go to the Tour de France, you need to hit a minimum power output. So you need to 
replicate and 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 and, and stimulate that energy system. So so I, I try to use this more for benchmarks, although they they, they couple quite well with heart rate. That's the thing. I, I look at everything together, right? And right. I say, oh boy, your power output. Let's say you did six watts per kilogram, and your power your your, your heart rate was uh, one seventy six, for example, right? Uh, whereas last week was one one eighty three. Right, so there's like a difference in heart rate, um, and that that that's, that means that probably that 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 cyclist is fatigued or tired, and it, which is usually confirmed uh, by him by his uh, rate of perceived exertion, uh, as well as uh, by uh, nutrition. I also we have a close contact with the nutritionist from the team, and um, who everything is measured uh, nutrition every day. But uh, yeah, there it's it's try to fine fine tune both heart rate and power output with this. With these athletes, different yeah. intensities. Since it seems, as you you mentioned, heart rate is kind of a um, a proxy for lactate. If we had reliable lactate continuous lactate monitors on the athlete every day on the bike, would you prescribe by lactate? Is it a superior measure of intensity versus heart rate and or power? Absolutely, to me, and it's coming for sure. All right, right? it's coming, and uh, when, when yeah. is it coming? <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, I'll have to kill you, but uh, <laughs> no, but it, it's coming, and uh, there are a couple of companies working on this now, and uh, it's definitely coming. And to me, it's it's, it's the way to go because lactate it, it it comes from your cells. It's it's a it's a proxy, a surrogate of of your metabolism at the cellular level. Right, heart rate is too, but heart rate might be more influenced by nutrition, for example, right? Uh, or dehyd- I mean, yeah, by nutrition if you're fatigued, or, or especially by hydration, especially, right? Um, and especially also, heart rate is so uh, individual, right? Uh, among athletes, whereas lactate, it is also individual. It's not the same lactate concentration of a world class athlete versus lactate concentration of a fat ass like me. Uh, it's a bit different, but um, uh, but it's not 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 so much different as with heart rate, you know. So that's what uh, um, the way to go, and and, and it's the future. I, I have no doubt about it that in the future we're going to be prescribing um, uh, training zones and and trainings by lactate zones, by lactate numbers between X and X millimoles of lactate. That's your training one zone between X and X another training zone for uh, lactate uh, as well. Yeah. Well, that's kind of key in terms of like your underpinnings of what you believe in and how you coach, you you know, can you take it from, from the bottom in terms of like zone one up three, it's a a five zone system that you prescribe with? Well, I use, I use six. Okay. And uh, yeah, so a zone one, it's just like, again, looking at the more bioenergetic level, right? So zone one is, uh, you don't stimulate much. Right, you mainly recruiting your fast. Uh, I mean, your slow twitch muscle fibers, the type ones, and uh, yeah, you 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 utilize uh, mainly um, uh, fat for energy purposes. You always use glucose. This is something that um, uh, it's a mis- there's a misconception out there thinking that at low intensity you don't use glucose. You do use glucose as well. And uh, I've been I started doing substrate utilization in the winter of 2005, so a long time ago looking at fat and carbohydrate oxidation rates with athletes. And yes, right away, I, it was also like, to me, we were like, whoa, even the low intensities, they use uh, some glucose, right? But but uh, a main energy source is fat. Uh, 
And then uh, uh, I always say is like a, the, you know, the, the way we recruit muscle fibers is obeys a sequential pattern similar to the stick gears in a, in, a, in a manual car, right? You're at first gear, and as you accelerate, the RPMs go higher and higher and higher and get to the 8,000 RPM. You, you can't continue on that gear into shift to second gear, right? So in a way, this is the same thing. You're with type 1 muscle fibers, and it gets to a point that it's very high intensity. So you keep recruiting more, and, and therefore, you get to a point where you are uh, at the level of about recruiting uh, now the fast twitch muscle fibers, right? And then when you recruit muscle fibers, the fast twitch muscle fibers, you utilize the glucose mainly for energy systems. So that point, that inflection point, uh, that that's that zone two. That's the, the, the you're still in recruiting mainly uh, slow twitch muscle fibers, but you're stressing those a lot. Right. So that also coincides with your fat max, your maximal fat oxidation rate, where you can translate into power output or into um, heart rate. Uh, that it can be very useful also for a population who want to lose weight. And if they can target the exercise intensity, the one they want to lose the more weight. Um, and then that's when you cross that, you know, that's you're in the eight, seven, eight thousand RPM. You need to shift to the to the second gear. Right. And the second gear, that's where I the glycolytic system kicks in, right? That's when fat is not enough, it's not fast enough to produce ATP. And you need to produce ATP uh, from a faster source. And that source uh, um, yeah, is uh, glucose coming from uh, glycogen and carbohydrates. So that's when you, you, you see that measuring fat and carbohydrate oxidation rates, you see right away that the fat oxidation starts plummeting right? And glucose oxidation or utilization starts going up. Then what happens there also is that you see, you start seeing the first uh, also inflection point of lactate, right? Um, that may, might coincide with, with what traditional people have been doing with uh, 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 metabolic carts using cardiorespiratory uh, exercise testing, CPET, with a VT, VT1, uh, ventral threshold 1, right? But, uh, um, but I look at better I like, I like it, use it better through lactate and fat and carbohydrate stations. But anyway, that's when you start deploying also a lot of glucose. And the mandatory byproduct of glucose is always lactate, always. Uh, whether there's oxygen or not, it's about a mass action effect and glycolytic flux into the muscles. So when you have a lot of flux of glucose, the muscles cannot keep up. The muscles produce lactate and they cannot keep up with that oxidation uh, of, of, of pyruvate. Again, that we see, things that we've seen in the laboratory very well, how pyruvate is transported through a specific transporter, et cetera. But anyways, you produce lactate, and that's where you see that lactate starts going up, right? So that would be your zone three. And uh, you continue, then you're already in, in, in that gear number two, right? Second gear, and the RPMs go up, go up, the exercise intensity increases, and it gets to a point uh, where uh, you need to shift to to, to the third gear, right? And that 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 would be um, um, when you deploy the type two A's muscle fibers uh, or uh, more anaerobic muscle fibers, uh, the fast twitch muscle fibers, the type two A's, and and that would be zone four, the, the the point, the inflection point where you can hold it until you deploy that. And that would be more to what we think about lactate threshold, right? That that's that's an, that's an so that's an intensity zone four, which is absolutely critical. That's where you 
win or lose races, right? Because that's that's when you you can uh, hurt uh, your rivals or get dropped. So you need to really, really uh, also stimulate those energy systems because it's a very glycolytic pathways that you need to improve, and uh, the turbo, and that's your zone four. And then the zone five, it is uh, uh, VO2 max, right? And uh, that's anaerobic. All the energy comes from anaerobic source. ATP is stored in the in the muscles and usually are very short efforts, like a one to three minutes. And then finally, you have the zone six, which is usually sprinting. That's in a nutshell. <laughs> All right, I'm going to go back. We're going to go down to zone two. Got some questions for you. Okay. So, why is it important? I mean, maybe stated almost obvious, but why? Why and how does it relate to like almost you know the eighty twenty concept? Do you mm -hmm. believe in eighty twenty? Um, you know, distribution of intensity. Yeah. So um, the zone two is very important because um, so it's a great, it's it's a key assistant to the fast twitch muscle fibers during exercise at high intensity. So I'll explain this. So when you are in the competition pace at high intensities like climbing or in a time trial or or or, or just like a racing mode again as i said you deploy those fast twitch muscle fibers and uh, therefore you use a lot of glucose and you produce a lot of lactate right now that lactate uh not lactate per se okay because lactate is a great fuel but the hydrogen ions associated to lactate are among Multiple factors that we still don't understand might be involved in uh, fatigue, uh, but we know from also from cancer studies that, that that not lactate per se, but the hydrogen ions associated with lactate are key for what, what we call the tumor microenvironment, which is very acidic. The acidosis of a tumor, uh, uh, you know, is very low, and that those tumors are more aggressive. But anyways, in the muscle occurs the same event. There's a muscle microenvironment, which is quite acidic. But anyway, so it's very important to, 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 to uh, utilize, oxidize, burn, you know, that lactate as fast as possible. And where you do it, where you do it, uh, you produce it in the fast twitch muscle fibers, and then you ideally, you um, uh, oxidize this or you clear it in the adjacent uh, type one slow twitch muscle fibers. And where in those twitch muscle fibers? In mitochondria. This is where my colleague George Brooks has been uh, discovering and, and, and for the last 50 years studying all this. And we know that very well. It used to be the lactate shuttle hypothesis. It's not a hypothesis anymore. It's a reality. And uh, so that lactate is shuttled from the fast twitch producing lactate fibers to the receiving lactate. Where lactate, guess what? It's, not, it's used for fuel. Uh, that's the thing. Lactate, if, if most cells in the body, if you if you if you give them either if you inject them with uh, the cell the mitochondria with uh, glucose or lactate, uh, they're going to prefer lactate huh. because lactate is a faster fuel. Last right. lactate enters mitochondria directly into the Krebs cycle for energy purposes. Whereas glucose has to be uh, broken down into uh, ten nine ten steps. It depends if pyruvate or lactate, but into pyruvate and enter the into mitochondria right. So, um, so lactate is a great field. So those athletes who have a huge ability to uh, recycle lactate, to shuttle it from the fast twitch muscle fibers into the slow twitch, they have two main advantages. One is like they reduce that acidosis, right, in muscles. 
so the muscles can continue because with acidosis, muscle contraction force and velocity can be decreased significantly, so they can avert that. But also, they 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 use more 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 uh, energy, right? And this is why it's very important and critical to have a very robust slow twitch muscle fibers and mitochondrial function. And for that, what I found over over the last almost thirty years is that that zone two is the exercise intensity that elicits those adaptations the most. How do how have I seen this? I've, I've done thousands of tests over the years and looking at lactate and fat oxidation and carbohydrate oxidation, both lactate and fat are proxies, surrogates of mitochondrial function because as I said, lactate is burned in mitochondria, oxidized, and fats only are oxidizing mitochondria as well. So when you measure in the laboratory, an athlete has, who has been training zone two a lot and then uh, uh, increases a lot lactic cleanse capacity and fat oxidation, therefore mitochondrial function has increased. Other athletes who haven't done that, you see small improvements or maybe they don't even improve. So that's what I've seen over the years that zone two is key. So, uh, but you need to train it. Uh, and this is something that also happens not only in, in endurance sports. Um, I've been working with all kinds of athletes uh, from, um, you know, like uh, Olympic champions in swimming to Olympic champions or world champions in rowing, for example. They're very, very intense sports. Uh, swimming 100 meters is under a minute, right? And uh, Olympic distance in rowing is about six minutes. Maximum effort is incredibly hard. Um, and uh, yeah, what you see, what they do most of the day, about 80 to 90% of the entire training schedule is morally, more in the lower intensity. So intuitively, you would think, right, like a swimmer, all they do is boom, 55, 58 seconds. That's it. So why not training, sprinting and sprinting and sprinting, right? That's, that's, that's the intuition. And of course, coaches, and uh, I will say, we cannot be, be so naive to think that the best coaches and athletes haven't tried that approach, right? Obviously they have, but it hasn't worked. So if you look at athletes like Michael Phelps, for example, the best swimmer probably in history, uh, yeah, it's just most of his training routine was in that room swimming zone too and swimming and swimming all day. Because if you could travel through the race, um, um, oxidizing a little bit more of lactate than your rival, that might be a fraction of a second that you can improve your performance. Okay, so I take it you fairly prescribe around the 80-20, meaning 80% lower, no, 80% of the training is zone two, one, 20% being intense. Is that maybe an accurate? Yeah, it depends on from which uh, microscope you look, right, or w yeah. which glasses. So yeah, I, I think that uh, overall the concept, I, more than uh, duration, because as you see, when you analyze training peaks, for example, you don't see people training... 20% of a high intensity usually, right? Uh, it's, it's Based on duration or session? Exactly. I, I, I like maybe make it more based on sessions okay. than on durations. And this is why if you look at the analytics from training peaks, right, you see that if you look at the duration, uh, even if you train high intensity a lot, you're going to see a lot of low intensities, right? Uh, and relatively smaller uh, high intensities in the duration, right? right? But when you're looking into into the sessions, that's what I like to look at, at, uh, at least uh, um, from my humble opinion, yeah. it makes more sense to break it down into something like that polarized level. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't have to be 80, 20 necessarily, but 
because it depends on the year. It's a time of the year. There are the times of the year where, where it's maybe 100% or 90% more in the, in the area. You don't do intensity at all. Uh, other times of the year, you're getting closer to the competition or you're preparing to go and you're doing more, right? Than that, you do less zone two and more high intensity. Other times of the year, you just have to recover. So it's zone one. So, you know, so it, it depends also. That's the other thing. It's like, where are your goals? What, what do we want to achieve? You know, and, uh, and, 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 and this is why we do, for example, with Tadej. Tadej, every race that he competes, he, he, he's there competitive always, right? So we try to um, uh, uh, prepare those training blocks specifically for each of his goals. But then there's a lot of resting also in between, and then we do it again, you know, and we try to dial in, you know, the training so that he can arrive in com- and, and be competitive for every every race, which I think it's, it's, it's the, the most important thing, at least for someone of his nature. And would you, would you still state that 80-20 based on session count uh, to be a good target, even if you're only training 8 to 10 hours a week? How does that relate to majority of our listeners that are not training 25 plus hours a week. Yeah, I agree. I, I would agree. I, I would say that that kind of philosophy, you know, that 80, 20, I like, I personally like it and I, I do it myself. <laughs> you know, I see that um, in, in, in one decade, for example, I'm, I'm not getting younger for sure. Right. So, but in one decade, I, I maintain my PRs, you know, that I did a decade ago. Yeah. Right. So uh, that to me and, and, and obviously to many others, I get emails every every day from people, you know, who are trying this approach also and uh, uh, who had never done it. And now they do it and they have great improvements at any age and levels. But uh, uh, but yeah, many people like uh, they confirm this. You know, I see that if you try to uh, curate, you know, and stimulate those mitochondria, right, uh, you're, you're going to maintain or maybe improve your performance. Uh, and therefore, your metabolic health, because as I said before, once the mitochondria they go south, metabolic health goes south, and many diseases uh, 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 appear. And um, but but then throwing high intensity is important too, because as we age, we also lose glycolytic capacity. The turbo is not as good anymore, so it's it's always good to have some high intensity sessions here and there uh, in different days even yeah. if you train eight hours a week 10 hours a week 12 hours a week uh you can you can do it so it so when you think about making a difference in terms of improvements in zone two versus zone four the amount of time it takes to make a significant improvement in a zone two meaning you are more efficient at recycling lactate as a fuel um it would just make sense that you need to spend more time in that zone. Hence, it would become an 80-20 distribution. Because talk to me about the, like, the minimum dose effect to make improvements in zone two versus zone four. Yeah, that's an excellent question. Thank you. So, so yeah, I, from my experience too, right, um, what I see is like uh, to improve that turbo, right, that glycolytic, capacity zone four zone four it takes weeks right but to have a a considerable improvement in the uh, oxidative capacity the zone two those fibers and those those metabolic pathways and mitochondrial function it's it's a it's 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 a work of 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 months and even years 
Right. So if we translated that to actual duration, so zone four, you, you said it takes weeks. That might be a total complete workload of eight, eight, nine, 10 hours over a couple of weeks, right? If even that. Yeah, exactly. If even that, you're right. Exactly. So that, that's why I, I, what I see is like within, you know, you see normally, yeah, everybody's different, but within two, three months, you see improvements in zone two. Uh, whereas you can see that in a much shorter period of time when you do zone four. Right. And, and, and this is what we've been seeing forever, right? A typical athlete who grabs the bike or the shoes and starts doing intervals, 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 boy, within two weeks, three weeks, that athlete is going to be very fast. We've yeah. seen, we see this all the time, right? Eventually, the majority of those athletes, they, they get to a plateau, right? And that's because they haven't uh, um, stimulated that, 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 that those uh, type one muscle fibers and mitochondrial function, yeah. but their turbo you know, capacity is huge, right? So yeah. they make great improvements. So showing that also, yeah, it takes, but in a few weeks you respond, you respond to that, that that's in a, in a short term, but obviously we want to do in the long term and, and normally to have a very robust oxidative capacity and glycolytic capacity, it takes time, but, uh, the most time you have to spend is in the uh, that uh, zone two, and this is what the whole eighty twenty concept comes into play, right? I think. So, give me an example of a workout you would maybe prescribe to a masters athlete cyclist to work on zone two. Mm-hmm. So, I would I would do, for example, um, um, you know, time is always uh, gold, and that's why, like, uh, you know, uh, we all aspire, I think, to work less and have more time. All of us were crazy about sports, right? Uh, to, to, to spend more time training. Uh, but yeah, we only have like 10 hours a week, let's say. Um, I think most of us uh, should be able to find at least four days a week to work out, right? Uh, either if it's a lunch break or during the weekend or in the morning or something. Ideally, four to five days a week, it would be ideal to work out. So the way I would structure a training would be... Uh, Two days specifically for zone two, right? Uh, then three days, a third day. If you have four days, I would do three, two days specifically for zone two. One day where it's mostly zone two and you can throw some interval at zone four, maybe towards the end. Uh, and then maybe a fourth day where you can do like the club ride, for example. You get together with your buddies and you just go all out. Because what I see is like to, to improve the, the minimum dose to improve that uh, uh, oxidative capacity is about three days a week. Two days a week you maintain, uh, three days a week you start improving. Four days a week, obviously, you start moving to a different level. That's why if you have five days a week, I would do uh, three days specifically for zone two. Uh, one day, the fourth, where it would be mainly zone two and some uh, intervals. And then the fifth day you can go all out with your bodies. And, and, and that's where like you're in the natural environment, you stimulate our training systems out there, energy systems, right? But that's the way I would structure in a general way. That, that's how I do it. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, uh, yeah, my PRs are uh, about the same as they were a decade ago, even better. The other day, I just, I got a new bike, <laughs> that's which awesome. also as equipment, is, it's, it's also a big deal, but I got a new bike. Um, and just using a new bike, wow, I, I got my PR down by almost a minute, right? And I would like, well, I, I couldn't believe it. But obviously, it's not that I, my metabolic health or, or mitochondria is improving that much. But at least it shows that I'm, at, at minimum, I'm maintaining it, 
right? Which is good for, for being 10 years older, but definitely obviously the equipment is getting better. This is why we, we, we see the Tour de France, for example, and so many other races that race after race after race, the, 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 the records, the, the KOMs, they're just being smashed. I mean, it's, it's, no, it's, I mean, it's, it's a, a no-brainer. You, know, you, you grab a bike, 20-year-old 20 bike, and, and try to beat your PR. There's no way you're going to be two minutes behind, you know. It's just so it's brain. all about the equipment. <laughs> equipment is very important, right? But mitochondria is very important. But mechanical, right? Equipment is critical also. Right, that's right, what, right. That's what we're seeing also. So how disciplined do you need to be within a zone two workout? I think about when I coached and I prescribed go do 90 minutes in zone two after a warm up, but then they went over a six minute climb and they were at th like lactate threshold for six minutes. Mm -hmm. you know, only 20 minutes into this supposed Z2 effort, does that mess up the rest of the zone two time? Are you now not in that lactate, like steady state? You, you know, you know, you know what I'm trying to say? Like, mm -hmm. have you, because you've introduced too much intensity within the actual zone two effort, you now have messed up the energy systems that you're targeting. You might, you might. And, and, and in fact, the one thing that happens, that's why I like to do it towards the end. Okay. If you do it at the beginning uh, or, or, or throughout multiple times, that's one of the things like, yeah, you're, once you enter into that glycolytic zones and trainings, you deploy those pathways and energy okay. systems. And for example, lactate is going to be quite high for several minutes. <laughs> it might be high for 15, 20 minutes. It depends on how good you are recycling it. And right. one of the things that we know from research from others and from something that we even published last year is that Lactate levels in the blood, they inhibit lipolysis, which is the breakdown of fat in, in, in adipose tissue. So when you have very high lactate levels for a while, you're not going to burn fat. Uh, then um, also we have, we published last year that lactate also inhibits uh, a transporter in mitochondria, which is CPT1 and CPT2, which is the, the door by, through which fatty acids enter mitochondria. So when you're messing up with those energy systems constantly and having very high lactate levels, even when heart rate goes down, that's the thing of, of why to your question earlier about using lactate or heart rate, you can, you, you can be in the, in, in the cardiovascular phase of being recovered completely, but right. metabolically you're still unstable, right? So that's what I like personally to be stable, steady, steady. And when you're done with that part of training, boom, go for it or, or maybe do an effort and do a good, I, I rather have an effort in the middle of the training and have a very good recovery and then go at zone two again, then, then continue, 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 because it's just, I rather hate just recover, recover well and, and re-engage, you know, the oxidative uh, system. So it's clean. It's like, in a way it's like less noisy, if you right. will. Right. Right. So I was, uh, okay with, uh, getting all over my athletes that, threw in the intensity when they weren't supposed to. Cause again, as you stated, like they may have done four minutes at, at lactate threshold, but the effects of that might last another five minutes. So they've mm -hmm. wasted 10 minutes of the supposed 90 minute, you know, zone two intensity. So I think like the discipline can be hard for athletes yeah. to, to really absorb and adhere to, especially if they're training with others and you almost can't yeah. do it if you're in some type of a group ride. Like it needs to be a focused effort where you have a strict ceiling on 
heart rate, I assume, you know, I'm not going to go over this heart rate and I'm going to do this for 90 minutes or whatever it be. Will people go out and start and expect to do that for 90 minutes? Or do you need to some type of progression of zone two? Yeah, I mean, usually you want to warm up a little bit, you know, first five minutes, 10 minutes. It depends. I mean, there of, of your status, you know, like I, I'm, I'm not super, super fast, so I just get out of the house. And in five minutes, I'm in zone two. It's not easy, but for others, it might be a little longer. But uh, yeah, it's something you get there quite quite quickly. But as you say, yeah, it takes that discipline uh, because when when you're trained with others, right, you, you are uh, you are... Either you are at their pace, which might not be your pace, and therefore you're not stimulating your energy systems that you need for that day, or they are at, or they are at your pace, or you might compromise your training by say, okay, I'm going to go at your pace, you know. Yeah. So that's why ideally it's important to train uh, by yourself. Uh, and again, that that's why I, I or someone who is right by you and has the same. But that's why also you can you can kill the bug. Of, of being in the peloton or, or, or high intensity in those yeah. club rides on the weekends, you know, and, and, and might be enough to, to kind of kill the bug of like, ah, yes, I'm, I'm competitive. I, I want to go there. I was talking to a friend of mine over the weekend about this and this concept. And he'd be like, well, that would mean I can't go climb on those days. I'm like, well, that might be the case. Like, yeah, climbing itself may put you in a different energy system. Yeah. So therefore on those days you need to go flat. Likewise for runners, some people simply can't run and hold zone two. Yeah. You might need to inject walking or only do high paced walking to maintain that. But if you stick with it, you'll be able to eventually jog yeah. and run in zone two. And that's the whole purpose, right? You want to have more output with the same input at, you know, mm-hmm. at, or relative intensity level, you want to go faster. Absolutely. So. We see that uh, to, to the example of people running, we see this with people with a uh, very poor metabolic condition, right? Which might mostly are either sedentary individuals or people with pre-type 2 diabetes or type 2 diabetes, uh, where they start a, an, an exercise program and right away, boom, they start jogging. You, you see, you put him, you put him in that treadmill, right? Uh, and they're warming up. They're they're walking as part of the warm up, and you're already measuring these the parameters, right? In the lactate right. and the fat and carbohydrate oxidation, boom! In the moment they start uh, running, you know, even if it's like at uh, four miles an hour or five miles an hour, boom! Fat oxidation plummets and lactate goes way up there. So, which something that for for maybe someone who is in a very good form is not is still zone one. Right yeah. for them is already zone four, right? So yeah. that that's why it, individualization is very important, and for that to be able to measure at a metabolic level these these parameters is very important uh, because that's the other thing you might you might think that you're training zone two when actually you're training zone three or in zone one or in zone four, or you might think that you're doing zone four intervals where you're doing zone three or zone five. So that's why it's important to do some form of testing. Uh, um, and for that, I think that once these lactate sensors come to market, they're going to uh, be a great guide, guidance uh, for, for any athlete. Um, but anyways, I think that, yeah, to your question, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's very individual um, to, uh, you know, to, to specifically target one energy system like, like zone two in this case. 
Right. But two athletes might have the same lactate threshold pace or power, but they can have dramatically different aerobic threshold or like zone two. <clears throat> like their curves might be different. The curves might be different. And especially what you can, if you look at the, the lack, if you, if you translate it into heart rate, you can see big differences, right? Or in fat oxidation. But the trends might be similar though. Okay. So you might see that one athlete has a higher fat max and, uh, and another one has a lower one. Um, but uh, the tendencies might be similar uh, because, and, and that also, it depends. I always, and I ask my question always, right? Uh, since the beginning, uh, is doing this, like, uh, what is lactate threshold anyways, right? Uh, uh, because lactate threshold, is that a lactate threshold for like a five-minute effort, a 10-minute effort, a 30-minute effort, 40-minute effort, or a marathon, right? Uh, when, 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 when runners are doing a marathon, they're at their lactate threshold uh, because they know that that's the maximum steady state pace they can sustain. If they go uh, one mile faster, they're going to blow up. Right. If they go one mile, one mile slower, they're going to be far away from their pace. Right. So when they do that, um, for, for in this case, it, it might be, let's say, two and a half hours, three hours, depending on, on your time. Right. But during a marathon, people are going other lactate threshold uh, to me. And that's what we also call the maximal lactate steady state. And that's what you see. The lactate, it's quite steady, steady, steady. It's much lower than when you do an interval on the bike. For 15 minutes or when you do a 1500 meter interval also right but uh, that's why it's important to identify when you work with an athlete what kind of athlete or, or, or what are your efforts you know are, are, are you a time trialist and and, and or are you a a, um, a a runner or a 1500 meter uh or, or marathon runner or triathlete right so uh, everybody goes even in triathlon right in triathlon you're supposed to go on the bike section you're supposed to put your lactate threshold. Where is there like Olympic, Olympic distance or is an Ironman? Because again, you know, if you go one mile per hour faster, you're going to blow up. If you go one mile per hour lower, you're going to be far away from a PR. So, uh, but that lactate threshold is just, it's uh, two, three, four hours long, right? But that's where you go. It's a time trial, time trial, time trial that long, but it's a much lower intensity, obviously, than a 40 minute time trial. So, that is a question that I always ask myself, what, what the hell is a lactate threshold anyways? Yeah. But in the lab, you would define it as a millimole as four. What, what are you, tar are you just seeing the curve change? Yeah, I see the curve changes. And, and again, I say like, I, I, I try to give this information to an athlete based on what is, what are his or her main efforts? You know, are you a, a marathon runner? Therefore, your lactate threshold for the marathon is this pace right or this heart rate or this lactate um uh, then you don't need to worry so much about sprinting that's the other thing is like uh, why would you sprint if you're a marathon runner are you ever going to sprint during a marathon no right so what would you you know spend time when you need to spend time on other areas right um for 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 a cyclist for example we know that the majority of the races are warning in the range between 10 and 20 minutes in the climbs or time trials, right? Mm -hmm. So those are the, that, that window of time. Uh, that's what we want to really, that's what I would call that athlete, your lactate threshold zone four is this, you know, 15 to 20 minutes, you know? Uh, and it depends on, again, on the athlete and, 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 and the different uh, goals that they have and, and, mm -hmm. and specialties within sport. Yeah. So, so to wrap it up, if someone wants to go get tested and figure out 
their zones, what are some key questions they might ask of the lab they go to something or, you know, around protocols or what, what, what should the outcomes be that they're looking for that they make sure they bring up ahead of time with the lab? Yeah. That's a great question too, because there are not many labs out there, unfortunately, right? Even, even our university, our lab is, is shut down. Uh, there was no interest to keep it. So, and I'm, I'm doing research now. So I'm, would, I get emails all the time. Can I travel to your lab and do a test? Like, Wow. We wouldn't have any any facilities so in the entire CU system. So, but anyways, the whole thing is that uh, there are not many laboratories out there. Um, but uh, I I would definitely be you know looking for lactate. Do you test for lactate? I would do long protocols, longer protocols. The one I do for cycling, I started doing it twenty years ago, no twenty three years ago, and I, I I like it a lot because they're ten minute long intervals. Uh, where you study uh, how you can maintain or sustain an intensity. And I do, when it comes to cycling, uh, I do a half a watt per kilogram at a time, okay. 0.5 watts, yep. you know, and you increase. And you, you, you study that person there for 10 minutes, eight, 10 minutes. And I, st- I start doing that at three watts per kilogram. B- before that, I do five minutes because not much more. And it depends on the person. Yep. If you do running, I would do five minutes. Five minutes, I, I find that is enough. Stages of five minutes? Five minutes. Uh, but the, the one thing is like, and this is to me is critical, the protocol, um, because historically, many, many laboratories, and, and you remember when we were athletes, we used to go to a CSU laboratory and we do their max VO2 max test, you know, yep. it was one minute ramp yep. protocol, one minute stages or two minutes, right? Now, those are giving you equivocal information because, for example, if you look at lactate, without a doubt, the lactate that you're getting now is the lactate from the previous workload. Mm -hmm. You do one minute or even two minutes. You need a minimum of three to four minutes to make sure that everything is clean and the the lactate traveling from the the muscle uh, space into the uh, vascular space and into the earlobe or the finger uh, yeah, it, it's going to be a several minutes, right? So you need to make sure, therefore, that you do longer protocols also okay. um, and discriminate more. So I would do lactate, longer protocols, and then um, more and more laboratories are looking at fat and carbohydrate oxidation rates now, substrate utilization, which is easy to do. You need a metabolic cart for that, and uh, uh, but it has to be very well um, um, calibrated, which is another thing. It's a big nightmare. I get reports all the time looking at fat and carbohydrate oxidation rates. And I say, oh my gosh, what, what do these people do or, or what, what kind of equipment do they use? Because this data is technically physiologically impossible. Um, so, uh, and that it can give you wrong information. Like so many gadgets we have nowadays, right? We live in a world now that we get information inputs and beautiful graphs and uh, but how much of that is real or, or accurate? Right. I see this all the time, at least with metabolic cards, and I have done thousands and thousands for almost 30 years. And uh, so I, I think I'm getting to a point that I could say, hey, I know when a test is well done and not well done. But I see a lot of tests with beautiful graphs um, uh, that they're, they're completely wrong. And then if you give that information to an athlete, that athlete is, is, is using the wrong information for training purposes, which might either put him or her in the overtraining stage or the other way around, not enough stimulus to improve, you know? So not easy, but I definitely, I would look for someone who has some experience 
and uh, a good equipment. Okay. All right. And you go, well, uh, yeah, good luck with, um, the team this year. Tade Pogachar was second last year. That came down to tactics though, not really fitness. So I won't blame you for that. I don't know why they got nothing. anything. That's someone else's job. But uh, yeah, good luck with everything this year. Super great to catch up with you. And uh, yeah, thanks for all the great uh, advice. And everybody get out there and be disciplined with your training zones, I guess is the takeaway today. Well, thank you so much, Dirk, and uh, Training Picks. And I really appreciate this opportunity again. And uh, yeah, and also thank you, Training Picks, for all the amazing service that uh, you guys have been provided uh, to our community of, 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 of athletes for, for all these years. I, I, I still remember, you know, I speak here and there. I, I speak with Jim Miller, right? Yeah, yeah. The three of us. We, we Jim's another CSU. Yeah. Uh, you know, we were all met at that school together. Yeah. And every time I speak with Jim, it's like, gosh, when, when Dirk came up with that idea, we were like, <laughs> it's impossible. That's not going to You guys are pretty crazy. darn successful on your own as well. So, uh, no, but yeah. I was like, no, so it's been, it's been a revolution. And again, I mean, I, I think that for us coaches, it would not be possible to work with athletes, uh, without you guys. So yeah, thank you for, for everything you've done. Well, thanks. We had a, a great beginnings together, so I appreciate it. And, uh, I'm definitely going to take some of this advice into my own training. So thanks again, Inigo. All right. Thank you very much, Derek. I appreciate it. Have a good win. Have a good day. Thanks for listening to the Training Peaks Coachcast. Visit trainingpeaks.com for more training and coaching resources.